everybody. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you are listening to Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast, where we have smart conversations about all things pregnancy, parenting, and motherhood related. And that includes health care, prenatal care, feminism, politics, and everything else that goes into our lives. I am the author of Common Sense Pregnancy, the book, and I sure do hope you'll go out and pick up a copy wherever you buy your books because that's where all the good stuff is if you're looking for advice on pregnancy, prenatal care, and the earliest days of parenting. I was a labor and delivery nurse for decades, and I was there for thousands of birth. And in the book, I give you the benefit of all those night shifts all my the stuff that I know, the inside information about how prenatal care and labor and delivery care really work in uh, the American birth industry. So that's what we usually talk about here on the podcast. But this week, we're going to do something a little different. I had the chance to be interviewed on the Expectful podcast, uh, which is an app, website, and community that's helping new parents and parents-to-be to add meditation to their lives. Now, um, I interviewed Expectful's founder, Mark Krasner, about you know why he founded the company and about the impact meditation has made on his life. And then they invited me to be a guest on their podcast and... I just wanted to share that conversation with you here. So I think I've mentioned a few times on the podcast that um, I meditate and that my meditation practice is pretty important to me. You know, it's not a real big deal. It's 15 or 20 minutes in the morning, sometimes in the afternoon too. um, And it's fairly simple. For me, the key is consistency. And I actually, I give my meditation practice a lot of credit for my ability to, you know, do my job, to raise my kids, to be in a long-term marriage, and, you know, to understand when what my dog wants, everything. For me, meditation is a way to plug directly into the creative force that rules everything. It lets me, you know, take away what I need for the day, and it lets me leave behind what no longer serves me or what I think of as problems. It's a big deal for me. And on the days when I don't tap in and meditate, I feel like I'm running on fumes. I really wish I'd known about this easy, powerful tool, you know, back when I was newly pregnant and a new mom um, or later as the mother of teens, because I think that it would have given me a deeper sense of calm, better resources to be able to really see the whole picture of what was happening. And You know, I picked up my practice roughly 10 years ago, more or less. I don't remember the exact day, but I remember at that time, my youngest was about seven. My oldest was in college and I was still working both my labor nurse job and my journalist writing job. And my stress level was off the charts. I knew something had to give. And right about that time, it, you know, as these things happen, I started hearing a lot about meditation and, you know, obviously I'd known what it was long before then, but I'd never really gotten into it. And I started by doing a little reading and then I looked up meditation centers in Portland and I found one that did uh, guided group meditations and they welcomed beginners. So I showed up and that's where I started. And now 10 years later, it's a very important part of my daily life. Kind of hoping it'll be part of yours too. Um, 
Surprisingly, my conversation with Expectful's Anna Gannon for their podcast was a whole lot less about meditation and a whole lot more about my career path and my strong opinions about how we should change the birth industry. And I'm going to go ahead and just leave the conversation with you here and we'll go back to our normal format next week. So with no further ado, let's listen to our conversation on Expectful with Anna Gannon and me. Hey guys, so today we are sitting down with Jeannie Faulkner, who was a labor and delivery nurse for over 20 years, and then kind of shifted and became a writer. And she's written two books. Her most recent one is Common Sense Pregnancy, which later turned into a podcast so she could explore more of the topics she wanted to dive into around pregnancy, birth, and parenthood. And it's named the same thing, Common Sense Pregnancy Podcast. And today what we're talking about with Jeannie is her whole journey. So what got her into wanting to work in the birth field, how she transitioned into a writer, and what change she'd really like to see within the healthcare system when it comes to birth. So a really insightful conversation today. I learned a ton from her, as I know you will as well. So let's get right to it. Without further ado, I give you Jeannie. Welcome to the Expectful Podcast. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. I am really excited to finally get to talk to you. (laughs) (laughs) It was a little rough (laughs) making this connection. (laughs) Yeah, we we had it set up twice and then things happened. But I I do have to say that you were were so gracious and it made me want to interview you more every time that I had to cancel (laughs) with you. Like, especially when the thing happened with my daughter, you were like, no big deal, go get your girl. And I was like, I love Mm -hmm. this woman. (laughs) You know, we've got our priorities straight. Now you had a, you have like a toddler who was having seizures from fevers. Yeah. You don't need to be talking to me. (laughs) Yeah. You were so awesome about it though. You were like, no big deal. Great. So, so thank you. I'm just, I'm I'm excited to have you here. Exactly. Exactly. thanks. Thanks. Yeah. I have a bunch of kids, so I 100% get it. How many kids do you have? So many kids. <laughs> <laughs> I have um, three daughters, a son, and a niece who are all mine. Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. That's awesome. So six was that or five? Well, it's five. It's five. It's just five. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just five. No big That's deal. All. Six. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's way too much. I'm the youngest of eight, though, so, you know. No, I'm the youngest of seven. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we have a special spot in the world, don't we? We do, we do. And I have to say, it's super fun, and I always <laughs> wanted a big family until I had a kid. <laughs> yeah. 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 I thought I was going to have two kids, but several more thought they'd have me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, that might be my journey. We'll see what happens. <laughs> But so far, one is, one is fills, you know, my time. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. let's, uh, let's dive in. Let's let our listeners uh, get to know you. So if you could just tell us who you are, your name and what you do. Well, I am Jeannie Faulkner and I am a podcaster and a writer and a maternal health advocate and a mom and a registered nurse, and a foreign assistance lobbyist, and a feminist, and I'm really crazy about my dog. (laughs) What's your dog's name? 
Louie. And, you know, do not be surprised if you hear him yapping. We had a surprise visit by somebody's cat in our yard, and it's just put him off. So, awesome. Well, I welcome it. I welcome any background <laughs> noise. I'd like to hear him. <laughs> so where, where are you located? Portland, Oregon. Oh, beautiful. It is. It is. Yeah. And were you born there? No, Los Angeles, California, actually. And I moved here uh, with my husband and two of our kids about, gosh, it's probably been almost 25 years. So, you know, from Portland standards, that's practically a native, but not legit. I'm LA girl. <laughs> but staying in Oregon for a while. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah I, be, I, I won't be going back to LA for to live there. No way. Yeah, I've heard it's a good place to raise kids. Portland? Yeah. 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 Portland's great for all kinds of things except for the weather, which <laughs> just sucks in, in, most of the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've heard that as well. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's bad. Yeah. So you, you mentioned a ton of stuff that, that you do, like so much. I know. <laughs> I know. But one of them that you said was a nurse. So you were a labor and delivery nurse. And for yep. 20 years, you did yeah. that? So I what did. got you into that? Oh, you know, I um, got into, I, I just was really fascinated with the birth world from a really young age. And, you know, it frankly happened when I was about 12 years old. And one of my siblings, who was a card-carrying, 100% legit hippie, um, <laughs> his wife had a home birth. And I was there. And I was completely enthralled by the whole experience. And I planned on, you know, eventually becoming a midwife. But, um, you know, my path led towards labor and delivery nursing. And that's where I stayed for a long, long, long time. And then eventually, and you did it in urban hospitals. Was there any reason yeah. towards that? Or that's just where you ended up? It's where I lived. Yeah, it's where I lived. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I lived in Los Angeles and um, went to nursing school at LA County hospital, you know, a million years ago, back in the eighties and then worked, you know, the first hospital they worked with was in downtown Hollywood, California at LA County queen of angels hospital, or sometimes referred to as queen of Hollywood hospital. And that's where I did my, you know, my earliest days as a labor nurse. So yeah, we had a lot of patients come through and then I moved to, um, another urban California hospital that was in Burbank. And that was really interesting because we had, um, we did a lot of deliveries, several hundred per month, I think, but it was a really great combination of interesting people from all walks of life there in Los Angeles, you know, from you know, immigrants coming in and having their babies to celebrities to, you know, everybody in between. It was pretty interesting. And then I moved to Portland and worked in a, you know, urban hospital here for the next 15 years. Uh, so you really saw a big, I mean, doing that for 20 years, you must have just saw just a big transition. What did you see? What was like oh, the biggest change from the beginning to the end? Um, you know, I think that the biggest, the biggest real hard shift was the um, instant move away from VBACs, vaginal birth after cesarean. You know, for a number of years, we were doing lots of VBACs in the hospitals. And then all of a sudden, this one study came out that said that it, you know, increased risks 
to have a really catastrophic birth injury, um, you know, in a very, 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 very small percentage of women, but it freaked the entire industry out from, you know, hospital administration to healthcare providers to primarily the insurance industry. And from one day to the next, we went from being, you know, hospitals that provided VBACs to hospitals that did not for a number of years. So, and that was, that was the biggest change I saw. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I listened to, because you have, you have a podcast, like you said, you're a podcast host. So yours is Common right. Sense Pregnancy. And I listened to the episode where you interviewed our, our founder of Expectful, Mark. And yeah. I heard you say about the studies that you both, what did you say? You both like, love studies and also have like a negative feeling towards them. Does that come from that experience with the VBAC? Oh, not just from that experience, but just because so often we can, you know, there's studies coming out all the time and they say all kinds of things. And we have a tendency to take what a study tells us as being the new hard fact. And then sometimes what happens is we find out later down the road that oh yeah, that wasn't quite right. Actually, it was this. And yet we have changed patient standard of care. And we do it all the time. And, um, you know, that's part of the reason why in the United States, you know, one out of three births is done surgically through a cesarean section. And uh, it's not a trend that is coming up with really great results. As a matter of fact, as our C-section rate has climbed, so has our maternal mortality and injury rates. And, you know, wow. it's because of standards of care like that and big shifts. Later on, other studies determined that, oh, yeah, for the vast majority of women, having a VBAC is probably a perfectly safe option and they probably ought to try it. And so now all of the professional organizations are rallying around that message and yet you know, it's still really, really, really difficult for a lot of women to be able to have a vaginal birth. Yeah. So through, through your work, you do this, mm -hmm. you, you're a nurse and then you somehow start writing. How does that come up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it happened, um, through a friend. I was, uh, you know, this was a long time ago. This was, uh, I think it was in 2000, 2001. Um, I was going through a really hard personal challenge. I had cancer and I was going through treatment and I had a friend who would frequently come and just go for a walk with me, kind of get me out of my house, get me out of my head. And I would tell her stories about what I was going through. And she, I'm funny. <laughs> so she thought they were funny stories. And, uh, she happened to work for a local publisher that was putting together an anthology of women's wisdom over 40. And I had just turned 40. <laughs> and, um, so, you know, I was like 40 and a minute, but I was going through this experience and she invited me to submit something. And I had never written anything professionally before. And I thought about it and the obvious, you know, subject matter was probably going to be cancer. And I resisted and resisted and resisted. I didn't want to write it. And I ended up sitting down and messing around with something. And all of a sudden, whew, this story came out of nowhere, came through me. And it was the first time that I had ever had that experience where something wrote me, 
And it was a funny story about grocery shopping for a multi-generational family where I had to shop from a newborn baby through a 84 year old man. (laughs) And it was funny and I loved it. And this first experience of, Oh, here's a story. Go was just intoxicating. So I submitted it. They liked it. They published it. They sent me on a mini, you know, book tour and I caught the bug. (laughs) At the same time, you know, I was working as a nurse and I'd been doing that gig for quite a long time and I could see the industry changing and I wasn't crazy about it. I didn't like the politics. I didn't enjoy that so much of my job was now about computerization and meeting insurance standards. And I didn't like taking patients back to the operating room all the time for surgeries that they, you know, probably didn't need. And so I was thinking more and more about what's next. And I, um, you know, got some writing advice from people about how to go about it. And and I decided that I would just go for what I wanted, which was I could see that women would write for magazines, you know, and I thought, yeah, I could do that. So I started pitching article ideas about what I knew to writing magazines and I got published. So it grew from there. And then eventually, several years later, I got a column for Fit Pregnancy Magazine where I wrote it, you know, advice from the labor nurse. I did that for about eight years and about got tired of magazine and newspaper at that point. And then website was coming on board. So that was a whole new industry to write for and a whole new audience. And I did that for a long time. And then I merged into advocacy and foreign assistance lobbying with CARE, the humanitarian organization, which led me to being a writer for Every Mother Counts, And now I write for care and I podcast about maternal health issues and poverty eradication. And that's sort of the gig. Yeah. I mean, what a gig. (laughs) I know. I know. (laughs) You know, what I love about that story though, is that you really, you really take control of where you want to go instead of you're not complacent. It seems you like to, to change and to evolve. Yeah. Well, you know, I kind of, figured out a number of years ago that the trick to it is to do it just that way. Figure out where you want to go and drive the car that direction, you know, because especially I think for women, for mothers, for, you know, for all of us, but maybe especially for women and mothers, it's really easy for your, your life, your career, your goals, your identity to get hijacked or to get overwhelmed by the responsibilities that we have in the world. And, you know, that definitely, I I have a lot of kids. (laughs) I had a high pressure job there. So, you know, that can easily happen. And then I had some, um, you know, probably very cliche post-cancer epiphanies about, oh, would you like to live your life right now? How about now? Now's a good time. Go for it. And that's kind of how things happen for me. It's amazing. I love that that did happen for you. It sounds like you're in a great spot now. Yeah, it's been a good long time and I'm perfectly fine. Yeah, and I feel like when we talk next year, you'll be somewhere else. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. know. You know, I follow the breadcrumbs where they lead. And so far, you know, kind of the, the beauty part of 
being a woman of a certain age in the 21st century is you can look back over the arc of your career and say, oh, yeah, that totally made sense. Yeah, that's how I got here. Yeah. I love that. It's uh, it's one of my favorite quotes by by Steve Jobs. You can only connect the dots going back. Right. I love oh, that. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah. So we we talked about that you have this podcast, Common Sense Pregnancy. You also have a book, Common Sense Pregnancy. Do you remember the moment that you came up with the concept of common sense pregnancy? And what does it mean to you? Um, well, you know, honestly, the the book so I, I had another book, my first book, um, which is the complete illustrated birthing companion, which was certainly not the title that I wanted, but the publisher liked that. Um, I wanted for that book to be the better birthing Bible, but they said, no. uh, that's a great title. <laughs> I know, right? birthing Bible. So I did that one and that came to me, you know, with somebody who was my editor at fit pregnancy magazine a number of years ago, she and I teamed up and did that. And then um, several years after that, a 10 speed press editor who happened to be pregnant was looking for advice, found my, um, column and reached out to me and said, Oh, Hey, this stuff is really, you know, practical inside information, really different from what I'm hearing from everybody else, medically based, but you know, not fear based. Um, would you be interested in writing a book for us? And I said, well, now that you mention it, I have this book idea. And what I wanted to call it was brass tacks pregnancy, because what I wanted to do was write something that just really boiled it down to what is actually real in your prenatal experience. You know, um, so much of what, so much of the way that we approach prenatal care in the United States is through the what ifs, you know, we do all of these things just in case you might have risks for this and that. But the things that we do just in case aren't necessarily harmless. In fact, some of these interventions kind of create this cascade of interventions that lead you down a dangerous path. So what I wanted to do was give information to readers about here's what's really going on and here's why that might be happening and here are the choices that you get to make. And ultimately, you're the one who chooses. You're the one who decides what happens next. So that's the book I wanted to write. And they said, yeah, that's great. As we got into it, they said, our marketing team um, doesn't know what brass tacks means. And they think it sounds too painful. <laughs> what does it mean? You know, brass tacks, like boil it down to what's real, boil it down to what's basic. I guess this is a generational term. My generation knows what it means. I said, it means, you know, like common sense. And they said, oh, well, let's call it that. So I had to give in. <laughs> With both books. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I know. And then um, the podcast, which was, you know, was sort of like an offshoot from the book. And there was so much more to talk about. And I didn't want to confine it just to pregnancy and prenatal care because I felt like the conversation was so much wider than that. You know, it, it's about the experience of motherhood and parenthood. And so that's what we talk about, all of it. And so that one's called Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting. So it seems like you kind of went from these 20 years as a nurse mm -hmm. where you just were watching all this stuff that 
you didn't necessarily agree with all of it. And then you right. spin into a writer and you can kind of talk about everything that you saw and kind of rewrite a story. So helping women to be able to, to make their own stories, right? Rather than someone right. telling them what they have to do. Right. So within this time where you kind of made that shift, what have been some of the biggest surprises that have come out of that? Hmm. You know, <clears throat> I, I think that, you know, I have, I think what surprised me was that it really revealed the need for another level of feminism. And my experience with the books and the podcast is that it's another, it's another way that women can be sort of, um, placed in a childlike position. For instance, where do you go in the bookstore to buy books about pregnancy? Do you go to the health section? Oh no. Yeah. You where go to you the go? childhood section. Exactly. You're right. You because when I section. did that, I was like, this is so weird that these books are here. I remember thinking right. that. Right. And the colors of your, um, you know, your pregnancy information that you're getting in these books. What colors are they? Pink. And blue and baby colors and bright pastels because mommies are so cute. I hate that. Excuse me. Can I just say it? I fucking hate that. <laughs> because that. we are adult women and we deserve to be treated that way. So the purpose of both the book and the conversation is to, you know, raise the level of raise the level of conversation. We're adults. You know? Yeah, 100%. And I'm sure right. that you saw that in the in the hospital as well. Like I know that when I gave birth, at one point my daughter, uh, or I got an epidural, and my daughter's heartbeat dropped. And yeah. they threw me on all fours and were like, prep the OR for like a C-section. And I yeah. remember telling this story to a mom when my daughter, I think was like five months old, and she was a mom of five. Mm -hmm. And she looked at me when I was telling her it and she was like, isn't that so crazy? And I was like, what? And she was like, that you just allowed them to manhandle you like that. And I was like, huh, I never really thought about it that way, you know? And she was like, you know, it's, it's an issue. Like she wasn't being rude about it, but she was like, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's an issue that within these settings, you know, people think that they could just throw you around and like you right. have control and like, right. it's so often our voices, we're afraid to use them. I know I was afraid to use it, you know, like it was yeah. my first birth. I didn't really know what was happening. Uh, right. But yeah, I feel like that's what you're speaking to as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that that situation that you had is so common that we know it's going to happen and we pre-treat for it. We know that women who get epidurals, very often their blood pressure drops. It's just a natural response to the epidural medication. That's why before you get an epidural, they preload you with a liter or so of IV fluid so that you're, you have a lot of fluid in your, your blood vessels. And if, they, if your blood pressure drops, we just load you up with more fluid. We moved you to a position where you're not on your back so that you're not compressing blood vessels that go to the uterus. But all of that is stuff we know is going to happen. And most of the time, we can take care of it very, very quickly. Right. And you know what's so yeah. funny is when it happened, 
you know, it seemed like such an emergency to everyone else. Yeah. Well, they were scared and I totally get it because if your baby's heart rate drops, how do you know that it isn't going to just keep dropping and stop? I see. Yeah. That is the deepest fear of every single person in that room Mm -hmm. is what if it stops? Now it almost never does, but that fear of just in case drives the entire vehicle. Mm. I know that when I was the nurse at the bedside and a baby's heart rate is, you know, doing roller coasters and scaring us, I'm thinking about a lot of things, including that baby's well-being, that mother's care level, my nursing license, if something goes wrong with that baby, because I will be named in a lawsuit. And we are drilled that way as nurses to always keep all of those factors in mind while you're practicing. Mm -hmm. You go to work knowing that every single patient you take care of is a potential lawsuit, which is terrifying, you know, and as a mother with a family to raise and a mortgage to pay, just like everybody else, you are careful about what you do on your unit because you want to make sure you're not the one, you know? Mm -hmm. Now we know that that happens and that almost all the time that heart rate comes right back up, you know, give mom a bunch of liquids. There's certain medications your anesthetist can give to bring the heart rate back up. And most of the time everybody is just fine. But for that moment, they're scared. And if the culture of care at the hospital you're delivering at is to take those scary moments right to the operating room, then that's how it's going down. That's probably how it's going to go. So what would you like to see? Because I can just tell you think about this all the time. (laughs) I do. What would you like to see change in in the cultural fabric of birth? In the United States, what I'd like to see happen is a, you know, I'm, I'm looking for something really dramatic. I would like to see the United States model its birth industry um, after the countries in the world that have the very best maternal health outcomes. What we do here is that 94%, more or less, I, you know, maybe the statistic is 91 or 95 or something, but in the 90s. That's the percentage of women here in the United States who see obstetricians for, you know, normal, routine, prenatal care and birth. And that's just what we do here. Ask any woman. She's probably going to tell you she saw an obstetrician for her birth. Mm -hmm. In England, Finland, Norway, Japan, Italy, you know, all over the world, these are the countries that come out with the very, very best maternal health rates. Moms are happy, healthy, you know all of that, most of the women in their communities see midwives for prenatal routine prenatal care. The women who need specialists, which is a really small number, and it's, you know, like 10 to 15% of women require some level of specialty obstetric care, then those women go see the obstetricians. But most women see the midwives who are the professional experts in, um, you know, normal routine prenatal care and delivery for healthy women, which is most women. We do it the opposite here. Most women see obstetricians who are, you know, advanced trained surgical specialists. And we deliver in hospitals that are set up very, very similarly to intensive care units. And 
labor and delivery units even have their own surgical suites in most circumstances. So you've got surgeons in an intensive care unit for a really healthy population. You're going to have surgery. It's just going to, that's how it's going to happen. And that's why we're at this position in the United States where we have one out of three babies born surgically. If we shifted that paradigm so that all the healthy women went to the specialists in normal, healthy prenatal care who are midwives and saved the sick women for the obstetricians, we'd have really different outcomes, really different outcomes. People like to think that the U.S. is the best in terms of that, but we're not. We actually kind of suck. I think we come in at around 60th in the world in terms of maternal health outcomes. There are, you know, 59 other countries at least that do better than us. And we're one of only about a dozen countries that actually has a rising maternal mortality rate. And why do you, how do you think we got here? You think it's insurance? Yeah, I do. I think it's insurance. And I think it's also, you know, like I said, the way that our birth culture in the U.S. is, is that the majority of women see obstetricians in surgical environments. That's our culture. And it's profitable. It's acceptable to most women. Most women don't realize that there is anything else available to them. And that's how we do it here. So interesting. I was yeah. I was talking to Anne Margolis. I don't know if you're familiar with her, mm-hmm. uh, but she's a doula and has been at like over a thousand births. And mm-hmm. she's a she's a midwife as well. And she really opened my eyes to the the real difference or the different experience that a woman a woman could have when she's pregnant and giving birth, having a midwife at her side as opposed yeah. to having an, an OBGYN. So yeah. Just, yeah, it's fascinating. I feel like you guys are really opening up different doors of thinking for, mm-hmm. me, for me over here. <laughs> it's the difference between being treated as a normal, healthy woman whose health we will support. Um, and, you know, we'll do everything that we need to do to make sure that mom is healthy. That's, you know, sort of the mid midwifery model of care. We, we focus on what's normal, natural, and we support that. If something comes up and it happens, you know, some women require more advanced care during pregnancy and birth. They just do. They have high blood pressure, they have diabetes, or they have certain medical complications that require that. Um, Well, then by all means, they need to see an obstetrician. Um, In some circumstances, a normal healthy labor can, you know, something can happen and you may need an obstetrician to step in at that moment. But that's not most of the time. Most of the time, everything's fine. And all women really need is, um, you know, some really great support to make sure that that's fine. That's not our model of care. What we do is we focus really intently on making sure that we rule out all of these risks. You know, we do a lot of tests, a lot of interventions, a lot of ultrasounds, a lot of, you know, a lot lot of testing, a lot of monitoring for that just in case chance that something could go wrong. And you know what ends up happening is that what you focus on generally happens. If you're focusing on making sure that things don't go wrong, you're going to see a lot of things Mm -hmm. that may or may not actually be wrong. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. 
Yeah. I actually had a boyfriend say that to me once <laughs> because, really? I, yeah, it was like, it was an ex. Um, but I remember, <laughs> I forget what it was. I kept thinking he was like seeing a different girl or something. And he was like, Anna, you know, if you keep looking for, for trouble, like if you keep looking for something wrong, you'll without a doubt find it, mm-hmm. but it won't always be true, right. you know? And he was right, right. you know? And I, but I always think back right. on him like, that was really smart to yeah. say. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, with the focus that you have and just from being able to speak to you and tell that you are really driving forward to try and make this change. And like you said, it's a big one. I think that it's a big one. We're very lucky to have you though, to be kind of advocating for us. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's, you know, there are a lot of, I, I've worked with many, 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 many obstetricians and midwives over these many years. And, you know, I'm not going to say that every midwife practices um, the midwife model of care. A lot of midwives practice very, very similarly to obstetricians. And in some circumstances, they're not really um, allowed to practice their full spectrum of what midwives can do. And so they become sort of ancillary support for the obstetricians who do that. And I know that's really common in New York is that midwives don't deliver in New York hospitals. They can do triage, they can do labor support, they can see patients in the prenatal setting, but they don't deliver babies in the hospitals, in most hospitals in New York. Obstetricians do that. So what ends up happening is you might see your your midwife, you know, for the first nine months, for eight months, but then you go to an obstetrician and it's the obstetrician who delivers you. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know that. And I live in New York. Yeah, that's really common. Whereas here in Portland, midwives are all over the place and they deliver in hospitals. I've worked with many obstetricians who practice like midwives, many, many. They're, you know, they're, they're looking for the right things. They're not being over interventive. They're not going out looking for trouble. Um, but they're not shirking back if they're seeing it. Right. And what we need is more and more obstetricians. I mean, right now the majority of providers here in the United States are obstetricians and we need more and more of them to be aware of what they can do within their practice to shift this paradigm to something that is, um, you know, makes more sense. Mm, yeah. I mean, I even, we went to ACOG, Expectful mm-hmm. did, which is like mm-hmm. a big conference. I'm sure you're familiar with it, with yeah. OBGYNs. And I remember, you know, it's this, this big room filled with all these people that pay money to be able to talk to the obstetricians. And we were the only people that, you know, we're a new company. So we're like jumping out at them, like asking them this question. And we're like, what are you doing to, um, to lower the stress of your patients? And so many of them were just immediately like, what are you doing to lower? It was like three different answers. What, what am I doing for my patients? I need to lower my own stress. Oh, they really do. Yeah. And then the other one was, I don't, I don't know. Um, you know, tell me. And then the third one was, oh, well, we do stuff in the hospital that's, you know, they already have like a meditation place or they already have yoga, which is of course awesome to hear. Um, yeah. But it was always so interesting me to me that so many of them were immediately just like stress wasn't really a factor for them, you know? Yeah. So yeah. fascinating. Yeah. I, I think that it would be really wonderful if 
the meditation community could really embrace the healthcare community because, you know, as I mentioned before, it's a stressful job. You know, you're taking care of people from all walks of life, all hours of the day and night at one of the most intimate and um, vulnerable times of their lives. And it's exhausting on our side of the bed and it's hard. You know, there's a lot going on for the healthcare provider, whether that's the nurse, the doctor, the midwife, the dietitian who's bringing the tray, the person who is, you know, taking your blood pressure. It's a hard job. It's really hard. And, you know, it's scary and stressful. Meditation helps a lot. Yeah, it does. I know that you have a practice. Yeah. 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 For a long time, probably about, I don't know, 10 years or so, maybe. Yeah. More or less. I don't know what I would do without mine. <laughs> I know that. Yeah. yeah, it's good to have. It's yeah. good to have. So as we start to kind of round up, come a, mm-hmm. a little full circle here, I mm-hmm. wanted to ask you, where can where can our listeners find you? Well, they can come on over to my website, which is com, And I know my name is spelled funny. So it's <laughs> J-E-A-N-N-E-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R. Dot com and that's my website and over there they'll find my books and my podcasts and all that stuff I do yeah definitely go check her out guys obviously yeah. as you can tell from this podcast she is a wealth of knowledge and funny <laughs> as she said <laughs> awesome to listen to so Thanks. I'm gonna ask yeah. you Thanks. of course the last question that that I ask mm-hmm. all of our guests which is mm-hmm. Standing where you are now, now mm-hmm. knowing everything that you know, mm-hmm. if you could say one thing to all the women that are listening, what would you say? Hmm. Boy, that's a good one. Thanks. <laughs> you know what I'd say is what I tend to say to younger women kind of a lot. And it's, honey, it's going to be okay. It's actually going to be just fine. And, you know, I can look back over some pretty big hurdles in my life, in my career, in my family, and, um, you know, hard things. And at the time, if I had had the voice of myself ahead of me saying, it's going to be okay, you're going to be all right, just keep going, might have helped. Totally agree. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing it. Well, Jeannie, thanks so much for being on the Expectful podcast. It was just so great to, to be able to speak with you today. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Come on back next week and we'll return to our normal format and go check out Expectful or find a meditation group in your area. Seriously, it'll do nothing but good for you. Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios. You can learn more about me at jeanfaulkner.com. You can email me, jean at jeanfaulkner. And, you know, when you do, if you have questions, let me know if you're okay with me answering your questions on the podcast. First names only. Uh, And be sure you subscribe to this podcast. And if you can leave me a nice review over on iTunes or Stitcher, I'd sure appreciate it. 
And if you're interested in becoming a sponsor of this here podcast, shoot me an email at gene at genefalkner.com. Till next week, folks. Bye-bye.